have you ever had a family tradition that was inherited from the parent before you and their parent before them and so on? Yet, when you really got to thinking about what this tradition was all about, you had your doubts? Then you'll emphasize with Zelly, who is next in line for her family trade, holding audiences with the dead. Just after this. Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh here, producer and head of audio here at Realm. There's a new show I think you'll be interested in called Ominous Thrill. It's an anthology of character-driven dark fiction. In its next episode, titled Being True, Stuart hits his breaking point and turns to the dark web to order the end of a troublesome client. But the mysterious woman who answers his call proves to have even darker needs of her own. Here's the short preview. You want to know why? Okay. Because I can't live like this anymore. I need this solved once and for all. Then do this yourself. I have fantasized about that so many times. How it would happen. What it would be like. Feel like. I just... I need help. Professional help. Ominous Thrill is out now, everywhere you listen. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, this is Fred Greenholz, your host of Undertow, Realm's podcast, taking you under the surface and into the weird and the wicked. We have a special standalone episode for you today, written by my dear friend and co-creator of the Point Mystic podcast, Marguerite Croft. Marguerite's writing plays with the edge of reality in incredibly satisfied ways, as you'll hear in today's tale. So let's learn about Zelly, her mom, and their family's amazing power in Keeper of the Dead. My first clue should have been that Mom's eyes had changed. One day they were brown, and the next blue ring circled her irises. I should have paid attention when she started dropping her fork at dinner, when she started looking fuzzy around the edges. But I didn't pay attention, because I'm too worried about why my pants aren't fitting right and why I'm nauseous all the time. The first clue that finally gets my attention is when Mom tells me she needs me to cook dinner for the dead. I'd offered to help for years because I wanted to help, but also, I wanted to see behind the curtain. I wanted to see what the dead looked like up close and discover the secrets my mother saw every night as Keeper. The second clue is when Mom can't open her closet door. I hear the reverberating sound of wood hitting wood and find her fumbling with the handle. 
Do you need help? She looks at me, eyes glassy with tears, and shakes her head. She struggles to grasp the handle. Finally, she steps aside. Sally. I open the door and remove her navy dress from its hanger. She's able to pull the dress over her head, but she needs me to clip on her earrings and clasp her necklace. Looking at Mom up close, I realize there's something strange about her body. Like she's not just fuzzy around the edges. She's shimmering. Do you want to go see Dr. Nielsen? I've already used my appointment this year. Help me with my zipper. I zip up her dress, and then we struggle to shimmy her pantyhose up her legs. I suggest skipping them. No one even wears pantyhose anymore. But she reminds me that the dead insist on pantyhose. And that goes for me. My stomach sinks. What if the pantyhose don't fit? And this is when the final clue hits. Mom asks me to drive. No matter how much I beg, Mom only lets me drive when she needs help with errands. Of course, I agree to everything she asks. Once I'm dressed, Mom reminds me. Don't forget the Tupperware. I grab the beaten-up orange and avocado-colored Tupperware Mom refuses to discard. I'm not sure where the Tupperware originally came from. Probably cast-offs the thrift store donated to us. But I do know my family's used this Tupperware for the dead's leftovers for decades. I put the Tupperware in the trunk of Mom's rusty white Chevy Classic, a gift from the town council years ago. The Tupperware is joined by a tie-dyed canvas bag with a hippified Joshua Bingham, the town's founder, silkscreened on the side. Discover Bingham, Idaho, with the dead, is written in neon green script over Mr. Bingham's head. The bag was from the 90s, when the town thought taking advantage of Jerry Garcia's passing was a surefire way to boost tourism. Unfortunately, the marketing ploy didn't work, so Mom and I have a lot of psychedelic paraphernalia around the house. The sun is lower in the sky than it should be, so I check on my mother. I find her standing behind our front door because she can't use the doorknob. She won't look at me, just walks to the car. I lock up and meet her at the passenger side door, which I open like I'm a limo driver. She eases into her seat, and I slide the seatbelt across her body. I'm tempted to ask if she's looked in the mirror. Like, really looked. But she says, We're late. So I get into the driver's seat and start the car. We drive down the dirt road that runs from our house to where Joshua Bingham used to live. Great, 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 great Grandma Anna worked here as the founder's housekeeper until she died. So then the Binghams gave great-great-great-grandma Esther the job. The house is weathered silver-gray and is surrounded by brambles. The wraparound porch slumps, and the roof looks like it'll cave in any day. Mom told me the house used to be grand, gleaming white with flowing lace curtains and pink climbing roses. But the town let the house go after Mr. Bingham died in the train accident. Mom says it's not our business what the town does with its property. All that matters is how we care for our house. Our family has lived in the little gray clabbered house that used to be the servants' quarters for over 100 years, which Mom says is something to be proud of. I turn onto the gravel road and follow it to the paved road that leads into town. I'm also going to need your help serving. 
Of course. You know I've always wanted to help. You aren't ready. I still don't think you're ready. I have to learn sometime. Didn't you help Grandma when you were younger than me? That was different. It was my time. I don't understand. You're worrying too much. Focus on tonight. Do you remember the rules? Of course, Mom. I memorized them in preschool. But you've never had to follow them. Never look the dead in the eyes. Don't speak unless spoken to. Always end sentences with sir or ma'am. Always stand by the door or in a corner out of the way. Keep my hands folded in front of me. I glance at my mother, waiting for her to respond. Maybe say the sorts of things I hear other moms say to their daughters. Like, great job, or you're so, so smart. smart. Maybe even, I'm, I'm proud of you. you. But she only stares out her window. We arrive at the dead's grand estate on Maple Street. Mom tells me to park on the side of the building. Once parked, Mom waits by the estate's side door while I grab the Tupperware and canvas bag. The key's in my pocket. I find the brass key and open the door. The scent of fresh lemons greets us. I inhale deeply. The dead's estate is a replica of the original Bingham home, only it's larger to accommodate the theater. It also has Greek columns rather than a porch and ivory brocade drapes rather than lace curtains. Each of the dead has rooms upstairs, decorated for the tours. Their real rooms are on the third floor. I've only been allowed inside once a year for the annual Christmas Eve dinner. I want to explore, to study the cherry paneling and wallpaper covered with metallic exotic animals, to touch the plush eggplant-colored couch I spy in the formal entryway. But Mom herds me towards the kitchen. Under Mom's direction, I prepare herbed roast chicken and roasted root vegetables, which Mom tells me is one of Grandma Anna's recipes. All the recipes are what Grandma Anna prepared when she was the Bingham's housekeeper, and they're the same ceremonial recipes each of the keepers has prepared since. While dinner's cooking, Mom instructs me on setting the table and serving the dead. She makes me repeat her directions, and I do my best to memorize everything. I should have started preparing you sooner. I just didn't expect this would all happen so soon. I'm here now, Mom. It's going to be fine. Set the table. Hurry, we're running behind. As I'm setting the dining room table, I can't help but stroke the underside of a bone china plate, hold a spoon in my hand to feel its weight, run my finger along the lip of a crystal goblet. The linen napkins are thick and soft, and the lace tablecloth handmade. I look down at the red velveteen movie theater seats where the guests sit, and I remember how I used to stand in the back on Christmas Eve. I'd imagine I was with my mother up front, in the dead's dining room, with the oak table, chairs, and buffet engraved with acorns and oak leaves. I light tall ivory candles in their crystal holders, and their light warms the room. I've seen all of this so many times, but it was nothing like seeing it up close. I'm pouring the precise amount of water into each goblet when Mom calls. Zelly, the oven timer. I take a final sniff of the peonies in the center of the table before I go. Back in the kitchen, I check the chicken. I think it's done. The skin's too dark. Mrs. Swenson and Mr. Frank hate dark skin. 
I hear Jeff, who sells tickets. Welcome, welcome. The guests are here. Their chatter wafts into the kitchen. While they're seating themselves in the theater seats, I arrange the chicken and vegetables on the serving platter. I'm adjusting my two small pantyhose when Madeline, the hostess, welcomes the guests and explains the ground rules. No photos, no talking, no getting out of your seats until dinner is done. Please applaud liberally. The applause sign is up front. I pick up the platter and follow my mother to the dining room and wait just outside of the guests' view. I don't want to miss anything, but I focus on the heavy platter to avoid dropping it. Madeline reminds the guests about the discount if they return tomorrow for the full tour. And don't forget the gift shop will also be open. Then Mom steps forward. I am Beth, Keeper of the Dead. My family has cared for Bingham's esteemed dead for over a century. I am the fourth in a line of esteemed, mystical women who know the dead's secrets. Tonight, you have the rare chance to witness me, the Keeper, and the sacred opportunity to witness our dead. She extends her arms as if welcoming the guests inside the dining room. Dinner is served. My chest swells. I can't help but smile. The lights dim, and then we're surrounded by darkness. The audience gasps. The lights come up and reveal the dead seated at the table. Mayor Swenson sits at the head, Mrs. Swenson at the end. Mr. Bingham and Mr. Frank sit on the side facing the audience, and Mrs. Krause's and Ms. Price's backs are to the audience. The applause sign blinks and the guests clap. I follow my mother into the dining room. It's surreal, like encountering a movie you've seen a dozen times in real life. The dead are dressed formally. The men in suits and ties, and the women wear modest jewel-toned formal dresses. The room smells like it's been liberally sprayed with Lysol, but underneath that, there's a sweet, cloying scent. I want to cover my nose, but I can't with the serving platter. I try not to think about the smell and focus on taking everything in. I don't want to miss a detail. I finally made it. I'm here, above the footlights, seeing behind the curtain. Good evening, esteemed dead. We've prepared herbe de Provence chicken, roasted root vegetables, and green beans for dinner. May we serve you? The dead stare at me. I can feel their attention drill into me deep into my core. I take a step back. Mrs. Swenson raises one perfectly penciled eyebrow. You may. There's something odd about the way the dead move, as if they're not quite real. Their movements are too fluid, their faces too expressive, they're too flawless, like they were made instead of born. As I approach the table, the cloying sweet scent intensifies. I swallow hard and breathe through my mouth. I begin by serving Mrs. Swenson. As I'm placing portions of chicken and vegetables on her plate, I look down and realize her lush auburn hair is a wig. Mayor Swenson says, Keeper, I understand you have this evening's news for us. Yes, sir. Mom steps further into the dining room. She positions herself a couple of feet to Mayor Swenson's right. I hope you'll forgive me. 
I know how modest you all are, but it's only right you know about the new school curriculum. They're adding a section on each of you to the state history classes. The audience applauds. I feel a draft against my cheek. I glance up, expecting an air vent. But there's nothing but stage lights, a chandelier, and the eggshell ceiling. I walk to the head of the table to serve Mayor Swenson. He's resting his forearms on the table, the sleeves of his suit coat right up, exposing gold cufflinks. His hands look so soft, almost like wax, his nails perfectly manicured. Oh, goodness! Why would they ever teach about me in a history class? Mrs. Krauss says. I try not to stare at her giant diamond stud earrings as I attempt to place vegetables on her china plate. I feel another draft and wish I'd worn a warmer dress, but I'm suddenly grateful for the nylons. I don't know that my many published novels are all that important. However, since they insist, how long will the children study me and my work? Ms. Price asks. They will study each of you for a week. More cold air, almost like a breeze. It's too much. I'm sure the children have more important things to study. Mr. Bingham says. The crowd claps louder. The breeze feels like it's circling the table. So important. In this town is a vital hub for agriculture and trade. I've never heard her speak with such enthusiasm before. I also didn't know we were a hub for anything. I serve Mr. Bingham. He's balding, and I realize his scalp is different from the rest of his skin. It's white, almost translucent. I look closer. Most of his skin is covered with carefully applied makeup. I scan the table. It's the same for all of them. Someone says something about Mr. Bingham's man-made lake. Something about flattery. Applause thunders through the room, and the breeze swirls faster. I serve Mr. Frank and I'm overwhelmed with that awful smell, mixed with black licorice. I gag and quickly turn away, hoping no one noticed. I stumble to the buffet and put the platter down. A woman's voice says something about setting a precedent, and the crowd cheers. It's like a cold current of air moves through me. I hold on to the buffet. More applause, and I feel like something's pulling me towards the table. Mom talks about paintings, an auction. I want to call for my mother, but she's saying, And you, Mr. Frank, an article recently listed your 1969 Pocatello performance in Carousel as the gold standard for all performances. Her voice is hushed, like she's astounded by his triumph. But it's not that. Her voice is frail. I want to reach out to her. And then, it's like something is trying to suck me in, like a whirlpool. I breathe deeply and try to steady myself. I finished serving dinner, so I cautiously pick up the platter and return it to the kitchen. I duck into the bathroom and wait by the toilet, just in case. The room tilts. I lie down on the cool tile floor and close my eyes. This isn't how I thought it would be. This isn't even what it was supposed to be like. I wash my face, smooth my hair, 
and return to the kitchen to clean. The dead are still feigning modesty as Mom lists their accomplishments. Madeline thanks the guests for joining the dead for dinner and wishes them a good night. On their way out, a child yells, That was so boring. Eventually, Mom joins me, her face drawn, eyes sunken. Do you want to sit down? I'll get a chair. I can't. I'm about to scrape one of the dead's leftovers into the garbage when Mom says, Put it in the Tupperware. The Tupperware? I look at the plate. It becomes clear. The dead don't eat their dinners. Mom brings it all home. Mrs. Swenson walks into the kitchen. Keeper, I see you finally brought your daughter. I spin to face Mrs. Swenson, drop my head and fold my hands. Yes, Mrs. Swenson. How kind of you to notice. I assume she'll soon turn 16 and begin her apprenticeship? She's still only 15, Mrs. Swenson. I brought her this evening so I can identify her weaknesses. I see. So, she's still in junior high, then? She's a bit big for her age, isn't she? A bit busty. Yes, Mrs. Swenson. My face burns. I want to cover myself so Mrs. Swenson can't see me. I want my mother to defend me. But I know she won't. That wouldn't be polite. That would be breaking the rules. I stare at my dress shoes, another gift from the thrift store. Well, if you didn't take so much of our dinner home... Yes, ma'am. You're right, of course. It doesn't hurt anyone to throw a little food away. In any event, you may finish cleaning, Keeper. Girl. I look up as Mrs. Swenson leaves, her head high, like she's the lady of the manor. Mom slumps against the counter. I've never seen her so exhausted. Do we need to say goodnight? No. Everyone living is gone by now. I help her with her coat and back into the car. It's hard to tell in the dark, but under the estate's outside light, the edges of my mother that were shimmering are now transparent. Her scent has changed too. That cloying smell has mixed with her natural scent that's always reminded me of brown sugar. Now I remember why that smell was familiar. I've smelled it on my mother. On the nights she's exhausted. I suspected the dead might have something to do with what was happening to her. And now I know. I pull out of the parking lot. I'm not 15. I'm 17. Yes. What was that about an apprenticeship? Technically, it should have started two years ago. It's time for you to learn how to be the Keeper. But you're the Keeper. I can't be Keeper forever. At some point, I'm going to disappear, Zelly. I'm afraid it's going to happen sooner than I expected. Disappear? You mean die? I mean disappear. That's what happens. We eventually fade and disappear. It's the sacrifice for being Keeper. That's horrible! You shouldn't be surprised. I told you about this when you were little. You told me we twinkle away because we're special. I thought it was make-believe. This is awful. It's not right. You watch yourself, Zelly. And it's happening sooner? Like, it's happening now? 
Maybe because there are more of them now? It used to be only Mr. Bingham. And then the Swensons, when your great-great-grandma Pearl was keeper. Mr. Frank joined at the end of Grandma Elise's service. Ms. Price, maybe seven years ago? Mrs. Krause, about two. Why does the town keep adding more dead? You know, the town is constantly struggling. When someone remotely notable passes, we get a new dead to boost the economy. I don't know what to do, Zelly. It was dishonest and ridiculous for me to wait for your apprenticeship. Keep her such an important service. It's an honor. I still can't believe our family gets to be the keepers. We're valued in a way we don't have any right to be. But I've been afraid for you to start. I pass by the gravel road that leads towards home. I don't turn toward home, but keep asking mom questions. Afraid for me to be keeper? I knew I'd eventually train you. I believed I could hold off for a little. Maybe I'd live a little longer than usual, and you'd have a chance for a more normal life. Maybe meet someone special. Someone who didn't grow up here and didn't know our history. Which is? That at some point we disappear? No. Where Grandma Anna came from. You thought they'd forget about the lava tubes? They haven't forgotten, Mom. I still hear Magma Monster and Tunnel Crawler at school. I'm sorry. I went through this too. But you can't blame them. Your Grandma Anna crawled out of the tunnels dirty and barefoot, not wearing appropriate clothes. She spoke that weird language. She sang and danced all the time, even in church. Didn't keep to her own personal space. It's like she was raised by wild animals. And she came from the lava tubes, and that's its own thing. The Binghams saved her, dressed her, taught her proper manners. It's a reflection of who this town is, that they accept us at all. I want to push back. Question why my mother buys into the town's bigotry. Why she justifies and excuses them. But this isn't the time for fighting. But I don't believe it has to be this way, or that it will always be this way. I always believed you'd be different, Sally. I believed you could be the one who would show the town we're not like that place where Grandma Anna came from. We're civilized, and we're not dangerous like the tunnels. They believe because we came from there, and because of all the accidents that happened there, that we're dangerous too. We're different, but we're just like everybody else too. Only we're special, because we're the keepers. I don't know what to say. I never know what to say when Mom says these things. It's like Mom isn't thinking about how, because Grandma Anna came from the tunnels, we're from there. I know all of this is uncomfortable for you. I know you were hurt because of how you were treated. But you have potential in a way none of us have had. You have the potential for a good life. I want you to have that. I want you to have the best life. My love for my mother rises in my chest. She's tried looking out for me. She's wanted good things for me. Sally, what are you doing? Our turn was miles back. We're just going for a drive. I can't afford the gas. 
You know the gas allowance only comes once a month. I do know. The gas allowance, food allowance, utility allowance, donated clothes and other household items, a tiny living stipend, a shack in the shadow of a dilapidated house. Turn around, Zelly. The desert is so close. I step on the gas. It's okay, Mom. I'm going to take care of this. We're both going to have that good life. We're approaching the threshold between the town and the desert. There's a weird movement in my peripheral vision, but I focus on the road. Please. You know we can't leave. I glance at my mother. She's flickering, like a light bulb about to short. They're going to know. They'll feel it. Just hold on. We cross into the desert. I gasp. A sharp release of breath I hadn't noticed I'd been holding. I pull over to the shoulder. She's hunched over. It hurts. It hurts to be this far from them. Her shoulders shake with sobs. Take me back. I make a U-turn in the middle of the road. We don't talk. A few miles further toward town, Mom stops flickering. And her breathing quiets. Soon, she's asleep. I think about what Mom's just told me. What the dinner was like. The smell in the dining room. The air currents. The cold that moved through me. The feeling of something trying to suck me in. My mother fed the dead. But not the meals she prepared. The dead fed on my mother. Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh here, producer and head of audio here at Realm. There's a new show I think you'll be interested in called Ominous Thrill. It's an anthology of character-driven dark fiction. In its next episode, titled Being True, Stuart hits his breaking point and turns to the dark web to order the end of a troublesome client. But the mysterious woman who answers his call proves to have even darker needs of her own. Here's a short preview. You want to know why? Okay. Because I can't live like this anymore. I need this solved once and for all. Then do this yourself. I have fantasized about that so many times. How it would happen, what it would be like, feel like. I just, I need help. Professional help. Ominous Thrill is out now, everywhere you listen. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. When I was little, sometimes mom took me to the lake the town's founders built. She'd pack a treat of peanut butter and grape jelly sandwiches and lemonade mixed from a packet. We'd spread a blanket on the grass, eat, and watch dragonflies dance above the water. I asked my mother, where did we come from? And my mother, she'd say, your grandma Anna came from the lava tubes, from deep inside the earth. She lived with savage people, not quite animals, and not quite humans like us. Were we always keepers for the dead? No. 
after Grandma Anna emerged from the tubes, some of the townsfolk found her wandering and rescued her. The Binghams kindly let her work as their housekeeper, and she lived in our little gray cottage. When she died, her daughter, Grandma Elise, became their housekeeper. That's part of what makes us special so we can be the keepers. Our family has been here so long, we've known all the dead in life. Where are our grandmas now? Are they buried in the cemetery by the river? No. We twinkle away somewhere special when it's time. We are the keepers and are different from everyone else. The rules are different for us. Then my mother would tell me I could go play if I didn't leave the path that wound around the lake. I'd run barefoot along the path to the place where I could hear laughter and singing. I'd follow the voices to the edge of the path and the grass where the lava fields began, where Mom had said the lava tubes were, where Grandma Anna had come from. I'd search for the voices, but never found the source. But then, one day, when I was ten, I followed the singing and laughing voices to the edge of the path, across the grass, to the fence Joshua Bingham built to separate the town from the lava fields. I knew I wasn't supposed to go over the fence, but I hungered to know who was singing and laughing with a happiness I'd never heard before. Over the fence, and across a final patch of grass and clover, and then I stood at the edge of the lava fields. Hardened black stretches of rippled rock, like frozen black waves. Here and there were boulders, and deep pits filled with dark rocks, and deeper pits that seemed to have no end. And there, not so far away, young girls and women in filmy dresses danced on the waves of black rock, their hair flowing down their backs. They sang the songs I'd heard on the breeze, the songs that made me feel warm inside. They saw me and ran over, joined me on the grass and gave me sweet things to eat. The girls brought me into their circle and taught me their dance. I took off my shoes and socks so I was barefoot, like them, and I laughed as we twirled and twirled around. It was like there was only this, me, surrounded by joy and freedom and love. We were dancing, and I was trying to learn the words to their song when I heard my mother shouting. Zelly! The women gathered the girls, ran across the lava bed, and then descended down into the earth, into the tubes, not looking back. My mother ran over to me. What are you doing here? I was dancing with my friends. My mother looked around, then stared out at the lava fields. There's no one here. She grabbed my arm and pulled me back to the car, saying, I told you not to leave the path. Promise me you'll never go to the lava fields again. Do you hear me? Nothing good happens out there. I promised, but it didn't matter. We never went back to the lake. The next night, we returned to the estate for another dinner. The chill, the smell, the sensation working into me. It's more terrible than the last time. Outside, I'm putting the Tupperware filled with leftovers back in the trunk when my nose is assaulted with black licorice and that stench 
I slam the trunk lid and cover my mouth and nose with my dress sleeve. Good evening. It's Mr. Frank. I drop my arm from my face and turn to face him. Eyes down, hands folded. Good evening, sir. I didn't expect you to be outside. It's my practice time. I prefer singing outdoors at night. He walks closer. I hear you're in junior high. I step back. Yes, sir. A little young then, aren't you? Sir? I'm sure you haven't missed your going through a change. Sir, I don't understand. No, no need to be defensive. I can't help but notice how you're softening around the edges, filling out. You have that look in your eye. I'm sorry, sir? After I graced the musical stage, I taught and directed many young women. He steps closer. Trust me, I'm more accurate than any dead rabbit. I pull back and bump into the classic. I clench my fingers into fists behind my back. Thank you, sir, but that's impossible. Don't you know? It's how it works for your kind. I've watched it happen, oh, three times now. It happens spontaneously when the Keeper starts to fade. It's fascinating, really. Much more interesting than any immaculate conception. It must be part of your people's exotic nature. He reaches out his hand, like he's going to touch my cheek. Are you nervous? Is that why you tried to leave town? Because you're nervous? We didn't try to leave, sir. I got turned around in the dark. <laughs> I taught for a long time. I can smell a liar. As furious as I am, I'm overcome with the need to apologize. The need to beg him for his forgiveness, to swear I'll never do it again. The town council will be visiting your home, you know, in the morning, I believe. They must address your situation. We know how old you really are. We just thought we'd wait to see how this might turn out. Despite my mother's training, I stare into his eyes. They're milky and flat. Now he looks away. It's not true. I'm 15. I lean forward, away from the car, my hands clenched at my sides. He steps back, still not looking at me. We despise liars. He turns, walking into the night. He disappears, and my unnatural desire to apologize and beg for his forgiveness is gone. I tuck my mother into bed, then rush to the bathroom where I strip off my dress and throw it away. I heave and lurch for the toilet, flush rinse out my mouth. I can still smell the dead in my hair. I step into the shower, run the water as hot as possible. I try to scrub them off of me, and then stand under the shower head so the water can carry every last bit of them down the drain. I dress in jeans and a sweatshirt that smell like the lavender sachets mom tucks in my drawers. I put on thick socks and tennis shoes to wander the fields. I used to believe being keeper was the most essential job in the world. I was told everyone wanted to be keeper, but only we were special enough for the job. I believed our town was special because we had dead who were also alive. Now I understand. We're a small town in the middle of the never-ending Great Basin Desert with few resources and no opportunities. 
a tourist trap for people going somewhere real. Like Salt Lake, Las Vegas, Portland, Boise even. We sell overpriced tickets to tourists who believe gawking at walking, talking dead people is a good use of their time. They eat in our cafes, shop at our stores, buy stupid mugs with the dead's faces, books about the dead's history. I walk outside, into the fields full of sagebrush and scrub. I kick at the clay, my shoes spraying clumps into the sagebrush. Now I understand why teachers make me sit in the back of the classroom and ignore me. Why no matter how hard I study to make mom proud, she doesn't care about my grades. I'd believed my mother when she'd said I had to go to school because the keeper's daughter has to be well-educated. But it's just another lie. She lied to me, like she lied to the dead. And maybe even to herself. My mother is disappearing. I will be stuck here, alone, where my only purpose will be to feed the egos of a bunch of corpses until I disappear too. And it will continue, as long as we provide new keepers for the dead. How did Mr. Frank know? How did he know what I can't even say to myself? I go back inside to wake my mother. I turn on her light. She's translucent. I thought I could still save her, but now? Mom, let's get you dressed. Sally. She turns her face away from the light. I'm going to help you. You can't. There's not anything you can do. She looks at me, squinting, and props herself up on her elbow. Please, let me try. What are you up to? Mr. Frank told me the town council is coming in the morning. They know I tried to leave with you. They know you lied about my age. There's nothing you can do, Zelly. We've got to accept their consequences. Mama, it's not only about you and me anymore. I stop. I don't have to tell her, but I can't keep it from her. I sit on the edge of her bed. Please don't be disappointed. I honestly don't know how it happened. What, Zelly? I'm going to have a baby. Are you sure? Now she's sitting up, her eyes wide. I borrowed some tests from the Walmart. She stares at me. Her eyes have changed. Now they're like opaque glass. Borrowed. I'm not even going to ask. Of course you're pregnant. I should have known when I started fading, but you didn't say anything. This is it, then. It's happening. I begin to fade, you get pregnant, become keeper, have a daughter. Then the cycle begins again. Tears fall from her eyes. Who's going to teach you to be keeper? How will you know what to teach your daughter? I've barely begun. I'm going to get you out of here. Us out of here. I told you, we can't. We're bound. I tried to stretch it, but it was impossible. You need to accept what comes. It's not impossible. I refuse to believe that. Please, just try. Come with me. No. She shifts her weight away from me. And if you try to make me, I will call them. Oh, Mama. I reach for her hand, but I can't feel it. It's simply not there. Mama? We will not dishonor our legacy or the dead.
We'll meet with the council when they come. You become keeper and raise that little girl. You honor our legacy. Make me proud, Zelly. Promise? I'll do my best. I turn out her light and leave my mother to sleep, glancing back only once. I curl myself around my pillow. My bed is soft and warm, and I want to lie here forever. But if I do, I'll stay on this path my family put me on, and I won't be able to step away. The town council and the dead will control me like they've controlled my family since Grandma Anna crawled out of the tubes. But if I step off, what will I do about my mother? When were we last happy, Mom and I? At the lake, probably, lying on our blanket cushioned by soft grass, warm from the summer sun, bellies full of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Mom telling me magical stories about our family, stories that made me believe I was special. And now it's here, the part where Mom twinkles away. I shiver, my breath shaky. What will it be like to do what Mom has done? It's like I'm trapped in a box with no lid. But I'm not in a box. My little one and I, we're on a path. And we can still get off. I remember what it was like dancing with them. The sound of their song. They were happy in a way we never were. And they knew how to be kind and welcoming. My family must have known how to be like that, once. Maybe we could be like that again. I leave my bed and stand outside Mom's room, listening to her soft breathing. I shrug on extra clothes and a coat, Tupperware from the fridge, and lavender from Mom's garden, so my daughter and I don't arrive empty-handed. All this, and some extra clothes, go into a tie-dyed bag. I find the heavy silver flashlight, another family heirloom. I decide not to take the classic. If they find it at the lake, they'll know where we've gone. If we go through the fields, we'll get to the lake faster than if we use the roads. And there's less chance of being seen. Mr. Frank knew I was pregnant. I don't know what else the dead can know, but I'm not leaving any signs. I walk through the fields that once grew potatoes and sugar beets, but these fields have been fallow since long before me. It's freezing. I huddle in my coat. Exhaustion hits partway through. I wish we could lie down and sleep, but there's no time. We'll rest later. I keep walking, thinking about what it will be like to hold their hands again, sing and dance with them again. The moon is setting when we arrive. My heart pounds, my stomach turns. I feel a wave of panic, a rush of adrenaline. I am afraid it's mom disappearing. For her sake, I hope it's mom disappearing. We climb over the wooden post fence that's been here for generations and land on the soft grass. I want to tell my mother I love her, that I'm sorry I never did what she wanted, but looking back never did anyone any good. We walk east, toward the lava fields, toward the tunnels. I click the flashlight switch to find where the grass ends. 
I sling the bag over my shoulder and climb the fence that keeps the town from the fields once more. We walk across the grass and then step onto the black ripples of rock, then take another step, and another, then cautiously walk across the uneven rolls of lava. I shine the flashlight beam in front of us, move it from side to side, searching for the tubes. And then I see an opening into the earth, like the mouth of a cave, large enough to squeeze into. We walk slowly so we don't trip, and then crouch down. I shine the light inside the widening tunnel. The walls sparkle. The dark descends deep, deep down. I take a deep breath, and we crawl into the lava tube, bags slung over my back, my light showing our way. Zelly is off somewhere in search of home, wherever that might be for her now. And our journey beyond the Dark Tome continues next week when we travel down east from Simpson Falls, Maine, through the Blackwoods to the coastal hamlet of Spencer Village. What starts as a homecoming journey for Sheree becomes a nightmare after her mother experiences an accident, and her 10-year-old daughter Lizzie will learn of family secrets that intersect with the Fey Realm. A journey of dark magic is ahead of us next time, here on Undertow. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's story was Keeper of the Dead by Marguerite Croft, performed by Maya Koloski with Shannon Campbell, Christine Marshall, Christopher Price, Joseph Bearer, and Casey Turner. Produced by Casey Turner and Carlin Daigle. Directed by Casey Turner. Engineered, edited, and sound designed by Carlin Daigle. Executive producer, Fred Greenholge. Recorded at Mind's Eye Productions. Keeper of the Dead is a Dagaz media production. Undertow is a production of Realm. Hosted by Fred Greenholge, produced by Mary Hazadolhi, associate produced by Nicole Kreuter, executive produced by Fred Greenholge, Molly Barton, and Marcy Wiseman. Original theme by Hubert Campbell. Find more shows like Undertow by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Realm is your portal to another world. Listen away. <laughs> <laughs>